Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, we turn to the second chapter of Philippians today. And as we do, we've almost reached the end of our series on true joy. And as we enter chapter 2, we'll see what I think is a very critical aspect of our joy as believers. If you want to know the joy of the Lord, you're going to want to pay attention. I think if you're a follower of Christ, you you deep down want to know the Lord's joy, know, know what He has for you to enjoy in this life. And God has blessed us in many ways, often in ways which we don't recognize. God has blessed us and helped us and provided for our needs in many ways that we have maybe never recognized and never given Him thanks for. But one of those ways is with the joy of the Lord that God gives us as we rely on Him and depend upon Him and and walk in obedience to His Word and in faith. And so I trust that as followers of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you deep down want to know true joy. And you want to know it from the Lord. And as we enter chapter 2, we're going to touch on, a, I think, a very critical aspect of our joy. Something that we're challenged with, something that we're reminded of, and we're going to see Paul pointing to this here. And this is a need for believers to be, the, the need for believers to be united. We need to be united as a church. We need to be united as followers of Christ. Because if we are not united, we will be obviously divided, and with that division comes a lack of joy. It comes with, with it comes misery, I believe. And what Paul will be challenging us to and reminding us of here is that we need to be united, and that will require our humility as individual believers. Each and every believer needs to grow in the humility of Christ. All who have trusted in Christ... We need to remember this. All who have trusted in Christ are one in Christ. We are made one by Christ. We are one because because if you have faith in Christ, your faith in Christ makes you one with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But God's Word also challenges us and calls us to work together toward unity. We are one in Christ, but we can be divided if we're not careful. God's Word calls us to unity in the church, and Paul will show us, I believe, that we find that unity through humility, the humility of Christ. Now, we noted last time what Paul warned the believers at Philippi about, that all who live for Christ will face persecution. That is, all who live for Christ, not just the Philippian believers, but believers in this day also. All who live for Christ will face persecution, will suffer for their cause, uh, for the cause of Christ, for their faith in Christ. So Paul wants believers to be prepared. He's concerned about them. He doesn't want them to lose hope. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. It's why, it's one of the reasons I chose to challenge you and encourage you for these past few months through the first chapter of Philippians and these first few verses in chapter two on this theme of true joy. Because if we don't see that God has blessed us with with much to be joyful about, and he has blessed us with the, the ability to know true joy in this fallen world, we might find ourselves instead discouraged, defeated, miserable. We need not be. We need not be. Paul was concerned that, that these believers at Philippi might be discouraged if they didn't have the proper perspective And so he warns them at the end of chapter 1, we noted it the last couple of weeks, be prepared, don't be 
disheartened because you face persecution and opposition for your faith in Christ. It's going to happen. If you live for Christ, you will be opposed by someone at some point, and you will face persecution for your faith in Christ. Don't be disheartened by that. Put your faith in Christ and obey him and enjoy the joy of the Lord. So Paul wants believers to be prepared, not disheartened when they suffer for their faith in Christ. Paul also understood that part of not losing heart when persecuted for one's faith is the importance of unity in the body of Christ. Not only do you need to take heart and not be discouraged and refuse to be disheartened when you face persecution because your hope is in the Lord, but also there's a, a camaraderie in Christ. There's, there's this wonderful love that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ that God intends to use to help us and equip us, and Paul wanted those believers to see that also. And we're going to see the emphasis here in chapter 2 that Paul places on the importance of unity and the path of this unity lies through humility. You will not find unity in a church if we don't know how to humble ourselves together and as individuals. So let's look together at Paul's appeal to the Philippian church to unity through humility. And let's be certain we hear this today. I want the Lord to use this in my heart I want the Lord to use it in your heart. I want the Lord to use it in, in our church, in this church, and in the work that he intends for us to do together. So let's look together at this appeal from, from Paul to unity through humility, and let's make sure we apply this to our own lives and to this church, because if we aren't continually practicing humility for the sake of our spiritual unity in Christ and for the work that he's given us to do, then neither will we know true joy. We will not know true joy if we don't have unity through humility. So let's look at it. Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to see with me verses 1 through 4. Follow along as I read. Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I want you to note, first of all, the basis of our unity in Christ. And what we need to see right away is that our unity as believers in Christ and as the church, that is, the, the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, we're under the head, which is Christ, our unity is based on these four certainties which Paul points out here in verse 1. Note how Paul lists these four certainties. Here's the basis of our unity. Verse 1 again. So if there is, there are four things here. If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, you hear the word if at the beginning of that sentence, at the beginning of that verse. Although the word if is used here in verse 1, Paul's not speaking of something that he hopes will be true. In fact, instead, what he's saying is these are, these are certainties. In fact, he's speaking of qualities that are real. These are certainties for believers in Jesus Christ. These are real to, to the Christian. 
There is encouragement in, in Christ. There is comfort from love. There is participation in the Spirit. And there is affection and sympathy. And all of these are very real in the life of the believer because these are, these are certainties based on what Christ has already accomplished for us through salvation. Salvation from our sins and the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. God gives us His Spirit. He saves us from sin, gives us His Spirit. And these things are certainties for us. Now, we can neglect them and we can resist these things in our lives, but these are certainties for the believer who longs to know the Lord's joy and who longs to walk in obedience to God's Word. If you haven't trusted in Christ here, I'll just say this. If you haven't trusted in Christ, these aren't these aren't certain for you. These are uncertainties. These are not guaranteed for you. You might... You might enjoy some blessing from God because there is a common, there is a common grace that, that unbelievers experience in this world because of God's mercy and grace and His patience. But these are not certainties for you if you have not trusted in Christ. So if you, you have not put your faith in Christ, you need to hear these certainties and realize what you're missing if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you need to realize that you can do this today if you'll go to God in prayer and confess your sin and express your belief in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And these certainties will be for you also, but hear these carefully. And believer, know that these are yours in Christ. And and you need to be encouraged and reminded that you could neglect these if you're not careful. So note the word encouragement. Encouragement. If there is any encouragement in Christ. Well, we know there is, isn't there? We're talking about it, aren't we? We're talking about the good news, the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners. If that's not the most basic, the most powerful encouragement there is, and that's where it begins, isn't it? There is encouragement. The Greek word here has the root meaning of coming alongside to give assistance by offering comfort, counsel, or exhortation. The idea here is that the encouragement of the Lord Jesus Christ is by way of the work of the Holy Spirit who comes alongside and helps and encourages gives us assistance, gives us exhortation, gives us counsel, gives us comfort. And believers do have that Holy Spirit who is described as the comforter who comes alongside to give those things. That's the encouragement that is ours in Christ. That is ours. The Holy Spirit is ours. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have the the indwelling presence of God in spirit. And that is absolutely incredible to stop and think about. If you've never stopped and thought carefully about that, you can be greatly encouraged in your faith if you realize that God is not only with you, He's in you by way of His Holy Spirit. Praise God. And believers do have the Holy Spirit. And there is encouragement in Christ because of the Holy Spirit. The Bible also warns, if you know the, the, the gospel, you know the, the word also says quench not right? Quench not what? The Spirit. Because we can resist. It's almost like we can throw a wet blanket on the Spirit and we can reject and say, I don't listen to the the Spirit in this area of my life. I know that God's Word says this. I know that the Lord wants me to do this or obey in this way, but uh, I'm not sure I want to do that right now. We can resist the Spirit, but believers have the Holy Spirit. We do have encouragement in Christ. And then there's there's the phrase comfort from love. We do have the Holy Spirit. We do have the Comforter. 
comes alongside to give assistance, to comfort, to guide into the truth, and even convict of sin and correct. That's the encouragement that is ours in Christ. And then this phrase, comfort from love, which is the love that God shows to all believers. It's the love God shows to all believers. It's the love of God we learn of in Romans 5, 5, where it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's the Holy Spirit again. And God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so He pours His love into believers. And because of His love, we learn to love others. Right? And we should be. We should be learning to love others because God's love is in us. And God's love is making us something that we weren't born as. When you're born again, you're given God's love. It's poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And God expects us to grow in His the example of Lord Jesus Christ, growing in humility, growing in love for one another, humbly and sacrificially loving one another just as Christ loves us. And then the next phrase, participation in the Spirit. That points to the communion that each believer has with the Holy Spirit. We have the participation of the Spirit, the participation of the Holy Spirit in us, with us, working with us, working in our hearts, in our lives, helping us, using the Word as we read the Word to give us the wisdom to live by. We have the Holy Spirit working in us to correct us as we take in the Word. The Word helps change our thinking about things, doesn't it? It corrects our thinking that can be totally twisted by the world we live in if we're not careful. And the Holy Spirit does that when we humble ourselves before God's Word and obey the Word and we go to the Lord in prayer asking for His help. God is faithful. He is faithful to provide wisdom by way of the Holy Spirit. That participation in the Spirit is ours. We need to take advantage of it. We need to get the Word in. We need to talk to God in prayer, humble ourselves before Him saying, to the Lord, I want your word. I want your wisdom. I want you to correct me where correction is needed. I want you to convict me of sin where I've sinned. I want you to strengthen me. I want you to encourage me where I need encouragement. And God is good to give that participation in the Spirit. And then the fourth phrase, affection and sympathy. It's what the Spirit seeks to grow in believers toward one another. We have the Lord's affection and sympathy toward us, and we're to give that same we're to grow in that same affection and sympathy toward others. What the Spirit is growing in believers toward one another, and we can either work with the Holy Spirit, learning to love one another, or we can resist and quench the Spirit's work. And we can be selfish. We can easily do that. That's not hard to do. The hard part is actually learning to love each other, isn't it? But we have the Spirit's help. We have the participation in the Spirit. We have His affection and sympathy. And we, we ought not say, I can't do that. I can't love that person. I can't love like God loves. No, you can if you're a follower of Christ because His Spirit is in you and you have these certainties. The point here is that believers have experienced such wonderful blessings from their relationship with Christ that these blessings become incentives to love others as Christ loves us when you realize how much the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, how much God has given you through Christ, it's, it is incentive to us to say, how could I not love 
others. How can I not trust God as I face persecution for my faith in Christ and take steps of obedience in spite of the opposition that I'm facing? Because God loved me, how could I not love others in this way? And Paul lists all of these blessings that are ours in Christ as a reminder and the basis for the certainties of our unity in Christ. And as a call to practice this unity, we see it in verse 2. Look at verse 2. So with the basis for our unity clear, let's note the call. Here's the call to unity. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I want you to note that the call to unity, the same mind here it says, the same love being in full accord and of one mind, do not hear this as uniformity, okay? Paul is not saying you must be all alike. That's why we don't require uniforms here. We didn't check at the door to make sure you were all in dress code today or anything like that. We're not requiring that. We're not talking about uniformity. We are all different. In fact, God's Word talks about that and gives shed some positive light on that fact that we are all different. It's the way God has made us. Thank God we're all different because by our differences, he brings us together collectively to be the body of Christ, the church. We are all different and God has given us varying gifts. Thank the Lord for that. I'm always surprised by what some people can do that I didn't know. It's like, oh, you can do that. Isn't that incredible? And often people step up to do something in the church or in the fellowship or with the facilities that we have, and we say, wow, look at how God provided for that need. God is so gracious that way. It's, it goes in so many different directions to see how God provides for us through our diversity. So we're not talking about uniformity. That's not what he's hinting at. But there is still to be unity. See, we can be different, but we can be unified. Even in our differences, Because the unity that he calls believers to here in this context means to actively cooperate, to come to a common understanding, to come to a genuine agreement. With our differences, we can come together under Christ, the head, as the church, the body under Christ. We can come together as the different members, right? We have varying members, just like our bodies have different members, right? And our members work together to serve together as a church. And we can actively cooperate together. We can come together and come to a common understanding and genuine agreement for one purpose. And that one purpose being unified as the church to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. To live like Christians in this world. Not just to live like you say you're a Christian, right? And you can say you're a Christian and you can live like you're a Christian and those can actually be two different things, right? But God calls us to live for this one purpose, to make Christ known in this world and to enjoy His grace, enjoy His mercy, enjoy the joy of the Lord. And as we enjoy the joy of the Lord, as we know the joy of the Lord, we can make Him known with our testimony, with our obedience, with our courage in the face of opposition for our faith in Christ, for our faith in the face of great difficulties and struggles and hardships. And how do we get there? That's what Paul is saying when he instructs that believers are to be of the same mind. How do we get there? Um, The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. Believers are to be intent on one purpose. 
You realize that when we come together, we ought to be intent on one purpose. We have our minds fixed on, our hearts fixed on, our lives, purposes fixed on serving Christ. And as we come together, if we're all if we're all fixed on serving Christ, we're going to be together. We're going to be unified. It's like the illustration I heard one time of the piano tuner, you know, who, who would come in with a tuning fork and can tune a hundred pianos to the same tuning fork. They'll all sound right. You turn one piano to the other, they'll all be a little bit different. But tune them all to the same uh, tuning fork and they'll be all right together. They'll be unified. It's true of us if we fix our eyes on Christ. If we serve with this purpose being to glorify God with our lives and make him known, if we're loving God and loving people working together to advance the cause of Christ, we will be unified. We will know unity. And how do we get there? How do we gain the same mind intent on the one purpose of advancing the cause of Christ together? It's through humility. We get there by looking not to our own needs, and we're going to see that here looking to the needs of others. It's through humility, says Paul. If there's going to be unity and if we're going to know the joy that comes from God when we are unified, then we're each going to need to practice humility. And I mean practice. Sometimes it takes practice to get humility right. It doesn't begin with by saying, you know, look at how humble I'm being today. That doesn't quite work now, does it? As we look at verses 3 and 4, Paul, Paul is going to show us three ways that we need to practice humility. You want some practice? Follow along for the sake of our unity. If we want to experience real joy and see unity in the church, we're going to need to reject rivalry and conceit. Here's how Paul gives us instruction. Here's how God's word instructs our hearts. Reject rivalry and conceit. Note how he says this in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, we'll get to that last part in a minute, but think about this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. So in that first part of verse 3, that word rivalry, it refers to that desire to always be first. It's why we call shotgun, right, when we go somewhere. Shotgun, I got the front seat. And the, the rivalry, it's like that, that kind of that desire that comes from who knows where. It's, it's our fallen humanity, I think, is where it comes from, to be first, to get the first slice of pizza, the first piece of pie, the first cookie from the bed. This is my house anyway. I'm first. I'll take the first one. Put our own needs ahead of others is... What this is, rivalry, it's putting our own needs ahead of those all around us. It's, it could even be an un, uh, it could be even by unfair means, you know, we look for these little scheming ways to kind of get an advantage. In the original language, it, it actually could have even referred to seeking political office by unfair means. Hmm, sounds like politicians in Paul's day weren't much different than some politicians in our day, right? This is not a, this is not a, a, a new problem, is it? But what Paul is warning against here is that if you're seeking gain for yourself at the expense of the needs of others, then you're not going to be promoting unity. You're actually going to be promoting division. You're going to be promoting rivalry. We can understand why Paul warned against this. If, if rivalry is prevalent in the church, if, if we're all competing against each other, 
There is going to be no unity. We are not going to be unified. Selfishness is at the root of rivalry. And if we're promoting ourselves instead of Christ, we're not going to have unity. So Paul makes it clear here that the Philippian believers should do nothing, do nothing out of rivalry. And the same is still true for God's people today. We ought to take this to heart and guard our own hearts against this. We need to discipline ourselves away from this tendency and we need to reject destructive rivalries in the church and in the home and in the workplace. We need to reject this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to face life with humility because of Christ, because of what he has done for us in forgiving us our sins and taking our sins on himself, the, the, the one who is without sin. We didn't deserve that. What a humbling reminder that we need to be growing in humility and we need to be disciplining ourselves away from and rejecting these destructive rivalries in the church for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our unity, for the sake of God's testimony in this community. And along with that, we must reject conceit. Conceit is thinking too highly of ourselves. We do that pretty quickly too, don't we? The words of Galatians 6.3 are clear um, here in warning us against this when it says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And there too, that's not an if. We We aren't anything in comparison to Christ, the one who is our Savior, the one who justifies us and frees us from the penalty of sin. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Be careful of thinking too highly of yourself. We dare not allow rivalry. We dare not allow conceit to gain the upper hand in our relationships. In God's church, amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, we dare not allow that to to take a, a hold for the sake of our unity and for the sake of our joy and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we can discipline ourselves away from this tendency is to consider others over self. Look at the last half of verse 3. So not only do we need to reject reject rivalry and conceit, but we need to consider others over self. The last half of verse 3, Paul says this, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility, it is the key to our unity. And humility is set here in stark contrast to rivalry and conceit. What is humility? I like the way Andrew Murray puts it when he says, what is humility? Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be, and here's what he means by no trouble. It's not to actually not have any trouble at all. But he says, it is to never be fretted or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is, to be, it is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and be at peace as in the deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. So he's not saying we have to have no trouble at all, but it's, here's what we do with our trouble. That's humility. Now, I don't believe Andrew Murray was suggesting that it's easy either. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. That's not easy, is it? He knew that. 
We need to trust in the Lord for that, don't we? But this is the direction we need to be heading. We should seek to discipline ourselves with the wisdom of God's Word, hold ourselves accountable to God's Word, challenge ourselves to be obedient with with quietness of heart, trusting the Lord even as life rages around us at times, knowing that God is in control and not fretting, not irritated, as Andrew Murray says, by life's difficult circumstances. And if we do, humility will promote our unity as a church and it will lead to our joy as believers. And God will bless us in this way, and we will know his joy as we consider others over self, as we learn that that is the only way that we do this, that we, when we place others ahead of self, is to come with humility before God in his word first, and then we come before others to put their needs ahead of our own. And here's what this should look like. Listen to Romans 12.10 which expresses it this way, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, this is not talking about having a little contest, right? <laughs> because we just, heard, we just heard Paul saying here, complete my joy by being of the same mind. You're not going to have joy if you're having another little contest to see who can serve each other better than the next guy. <laughs> If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, but do nothing from rivalry. Do nothing from rivalry. So be careful when you hear a passage like Romans 12.10 that says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. This ought not be something that we even pay attention to. This is something that we talk talk about to ourselves, that we discipline ourselves with. Look, I want to honor the next guy far better than he ever honors me. And I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to keep an account. I'm not going to keep a ledger. Here's how many good things I did, and here's the one thing good they did. No, nothing like that. That's easy to do, isn't it? But this is to be our attitude. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's not a contest. It's obedience. It's living like Christ. Now, at first, it's far too easy for us to get that wrong, isn't it? To get that backwards. To do just the opposite. Instead of counting others more significant than ourselves, instead of loving one another with brotherly affection, instead of outdoing one another in showing honor, we are quick to point fingers at the things that other people do wrong. How could they do that to me? How dare they, right? We are quick to point out our own rights. We're quick to point fingers when others don't do right while, while overlooking our own faults at the same time. But if we think of the needs of others as more important than our own, if we, if we do like Andrew Murray says, if we never, never allow ourselves to fret or be irritated or sore or disappointed at the way someone treats us or doesn't treat us, or what they say about us or don't say about us, or how we've been blamed or despised, if we refuse to be upset by that because our hope is in the Lord, it'll be far easier for us to practice this, to to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor. And that will promote unity. And that leads to Paul's next point. Paul shows us that we'll promote unity through humility and we'll know joy if we will look to the needs of others 
Look to the needs of others. So here it is. I think of it this way. First, we think right. First, we get our thinking right based on what God's Word says, based on the example of Jesus Christ. First, think right. Counting others as more significant than yourself. Just get your thinking fixed on this, that look at what Christ did. Look at how glorious Christ is. God in human flesh, He considered Himself to be less important than me because He died for my sins. He wasn't less important than me, but He considered Himself to be. And oh, how that ought to correct our thinking about ourselves and think about the needs of others. So first, think right, not being over-concerned with self, but counting others more significant than ourselves. Then we do right. So think right, and then we do right, looking to the needs of others. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We look to our own needs, don't we? That's why you, when you got up today, you, you know, you cleaned yourself, you dressed yourself, you fed yourself, you made your coffee, you did whatever, you, you know, you turned the heat on in the car this morning because you wanted to be warm instead of frozen, right? You care for yourself. You take care of yourself. And we're not saying that's wrong, and Paul's not saying that's wrong. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interests. You do that naturally, don't you? You know what needs to become second nature for us? Looking to the needs and interests of others. Why? For the sake of our unity as a church and for the sake of your joy in the Lord. You will not know joy if you're fixed on self. Think right and then do right. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You think about yourself a lot, right? I know I think about myself a lot. How about taking some of that mental energy and turning it to think about others? And, and we may need to practice this before it becomes second nature, and it may never feel like it becomes second nature. We may need to practice this and work at this to get this right, to honor the Lord in this way, not only considering that others have needs, but considering what those needs are and how I can serve to meet those needs. Maybe needs they don't even recognize in their own lives. So I would ask you this morning, do you make the needs and interests of others your concern? Or are you only concerned about yourself? I know you're concerned about yourself. I know I'm concerned about myself. That's The, the Bible knows that that's where we live, right? We're concerned about ourselves, but is that where we stop? It ought not be where we stop. For the sake of our unity, which has grown and flourishes as we, as we grow in humility, and for the sake of our joy, which is ours as we obey, that first part of verse 4 recognizes that we're all pretty good at taking care of our own interests and needs, and that's not necessarily wrong, but if that's all we do, there's something wrong with that. We need to look to the interests and needs of others. We need to be concerned about the needs of others. We need to pay attention to those around us in the church and look for ways that God is going to use us to encourage them and help them and, and advance the cause of Christ in this world by our obedience to God's Word here. And if we're going to promote unity in the church and if we're going to know joy as a result, then we must learn to look and care for and, and find the needs of others and help meet those in obedience to God, and we will know His joy when we do. 
And if we're going to be a church that is truly loving God and loving people, we're going to take this challenge from God's Word personally. We're going to say, this is God speaking to me today. Not, oh, I could see how, you know, there's a few people that I could think could do this better if they would just pay attention. Let's think about ourselves here. Let's think about how we as individuals can humble ourselves before God, humble ourselves in the church, and serve one another for the sake of our unity, which is in Christ, for the sake of our joy, which is a gift of God. And if we live this way, it will mean we're practicing humility in the church, and as a result, we'll be enjoying the unity that's ours in Christ, and that will lead to our joy. Unity in the church is vital to our mission as a church. Unity is vital to our, to our mission as believers and as a church. And through unity, we will know joy. But if we reject this, if we continue to fix our eyes on ourselves and we refuse to practice humility for the sake of our unity, we will not know joy. But if we do know this, through unity, we will know joy. And our joy will be a glowing testimony of God's grace towards sinners. A wonderful testimony bright, shining testimony to the world around us. We may not always get this right. We may have our problems that we need to work through, and, and we, we will understand that as, as we know that we all still deal with sin, don't we? But as the world looks on, the world ought to see a church that loves one another because of Christ. The world ought to see a church that is unified in this one purpose of getting the gospel into this world in which we live, proclaiming Christ and making him known, proclaiming Christ crucified for sinners. And our joy will be a glowing testimony of God's grace towards sinners when we get this right. So let's remember always that humility is the path which leads to unity. And our unity leads to our joy. And we can thank God for that. That is by God's design. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your perfect designs. You are the perfect creator. You are the God of, of all creation, the God of the universe, and created all good things for us to enjoy. And we realize that you created for us and gave us the church to enjoy. And the church that we, that we come to and and call Higgins Lake Baptist Church this collection of, of people who come together to, to make Christ known. This is your gift to us to encourage us, to equip us, even to admonish us and correct us and to edify us, to help us grow in the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to enjoy being a part of this fellowship, but also, Lord, help us to look for the way that you would have us serve you here. And, and Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor you in growing in humility, that we would look to the needs of others, that we would consider the needs of others and consider others as more important than ourselves, being careful that we don't obsess about our own needs to the neglect of others. God, I pray, give us wisdom as a church. Give us wisdom as individual believers as we look to your word today to be encouraged, to be corrected to be given your wisdom so that we might leave this place ready to serve you in the week ahead for your glory so that we might make Christ known, Jesus Christ, the one crucified for sinners, risen from the dead and living today, that all who trust in him might know salvation from sins, forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Christ and might know the joy of the Lord. Father, help us. Help us to humble ourselves before you always. 
Help us to humble ourselves before your word. And Lord, help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and get them on the needs of others around us so that we might glorify you and promote unity in this fellowship of believers so that we might know true, true joy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.